on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. But the responsibility to have a healthy conversation is mutual for everyone. And no one can say, well, because I'm black, I don't have to have this conversation with you. Or no one can say, well, I'm white and we, and we freed you in the Civil War, so why should I have this conversation with you? No one can, can duck out and say, well, it's just their, their responsibility to have this conversation. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project Podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together, we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. That's Dr. George Yancey, a professor of sociology at Baylor University who specializes in race relations and anti-Christian attitudes in the United States. In his most recent book, Beyond Racial Division, which was published in March 2022, Dr. Yancey critiques the two most dominant approaches to confronting racial issues in America today and offers a unifying alternative. In this conversation, we discuss colorblindness on the one hand and anti-racism on the other as two competing but ultimately ineffective and counterproductive attempts to address racial tension and alienation in the United States. Instead, Dr. Yancey provides a Christian model for race relations and offers advice for how to pursue justice and racial reconciliation from a specifically biblical point of view. Here's the conversation. I thought that Beyond Racial Division was compelling, it was thoughtful, it was well-researched, and it is much needed. So what was your primary motivation for writing it? What were you hoping to say or to communicate? I felt that what we were doing to deal with race was not working. And I'm talking about on all sides of the issue. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not just pointing fingers at one particular group. I think for a variety of reasons, nothing was working. And I felt that I articulated, even 15 years ago, a, a different path. And it seemed there's minimal interest in it. And so I guess I got interested in other po- projects. But with 2020 and, and with all the uh, uproar and actually some attention was focused on beyond Russia gridlock, I thought, well, you know what? Maybe there is a, maybe this is the time and place. Maybe God's brought me to here for this particular reason. And so I wanted to update that book, but also look at some of the additional information that I learned over the years. With years comes some modicum of wisdom so I wanted to uh, look at that. And so I wanted to, uh, in a way, update it, but, but not just update it by, by looking at the same arguments and make them a little bit stronger. I wanted to bring fresh eyes to it and try to reach out with a different perspective. So that kind of got the ball rolling in, in writing this book. That's very helpful. One of the things that I've noticed is we tend to talk past one another when it comes to the issue of race and it's very helpful to define our terms and to think clearly about the issues so that we can communicate well with one another. So there's a few terms I'd love to ask you to define because I think it'll help set the conversation. Early in the book, you prefer to speak of the United States as a racialized 
society as opposed to a racist society or a white supremacist society. So what does that term racialized mean for you? And why do you think that's a better term compared to some of the alternatives? Well, I guess I'll take the second question first. I think when you go to the alternatives, you start an argument. So you want to say this is a racist society or a white supremacist society. You're going to get people to say, well, no, we're not. And then you get into what do you mean by that? I, to me, I don't find that a, a productive argument. I'd rather, if I'm going to argue, argue on other bases. And so I talk about a racialized society. And all that means is that your race matters. Now, very few people today are going to say, well, race doesn't matter at all. You know, of course, race matters. And there's a lot of ways to show that race matters. Uh, and so that's why I talk about a racialized society. Once people accept it's racialized, then we can ask the question, how is it racialized and what can we do about it? And that's probably part of the reason why uh, so many people are resistant in our broader society to the idea that racism is still an issue. I mean, I think among white people in particular, there's a, a tendency to just say, well, we, we've solved these problems through the civil rights movement. Uh, I don't have a problem with uh, you know, people of color, et cetera. I'm not a racist. So when we're speaking to that audience, how can we help people see some of the ongoing uh, effects of racism within our racialized culture. So what are some examples that you might point to to help shed some light on that issue? Sure. There's some studies that really indicate that we're a racialized society, race still matters. Here's just one example. There's something called an audit study. Now, an audit study is when you take a, a white person and then a black and or Hispanic person and they apply for the same job. There's some technique to it. You have to try to equalize the resumes. And then you see who gets called back. Now, there's not been just a couple. There's been a lot of these audit studies. And there's been what we call a meta-analysis, where they look at all these studies together to see what the overall effect is. And consistently, the effect is that the white person is called for the interview much more likely than the African-American or the Hispanic-American person. Now, is that some sort of subtle racial prejudice? Is that due to some sort of structural issues that favor the European-Americans? You know, these studies can't quite get at that. What we do know is that if you're an African-American or a Hispanic-American, your chances of being called back for a job is less simply because you're an African-American or a Hispanic-American. So that's just one example. So one of the things that you talk about is that we often find ourselves today caught in this unhealthy cycle where there'll be a racial incident, then there'll be a protest, counter-protest, and then we go back to some state of normalcy. How would you expand on that idea? What, what is this unhealthy cycle that we find ourselves in with respect to racial alienation? Well, here's an example that what really wasn't out there as much when I was writing the book, but I think it's a very clear one. You know, look at the school protests over quick race theory. And for a minute, forget about whether they're actually protesting critical race theory or not. What happened was you had George Floyd and Albury and all that sort of stuff happen. And so school boards, as far as a type of protest, they decided to put in literature, a curriculum that addressed that. A lot of it based in anti-racism. And it was something we call critical race theory. And so you had this. Well, now you see the counter-protests where people are now at those boards saying, no, we're not going to allow this, and they're protesting back. Now, at some point, you'll get back to a state of normalcy where we're kind of where we were at before, but nothing's really changed. You know, the same alienation, the same estrangement is still there. 
So it's waiting for the next incident to happen, whether it's going to be a shooting or whether it's going to be curriculum or whether it's going to be someone saying something that they shouldn't or be misunderstood. The next racial incident is just waiting to happen to we'll, we'll have some sort of protest, some sort of counter protest, and they'll go back to normality. And, and we're just stuck in this cycle of never solving the problem of racial alienation. And what do you find especially unhealthy about that? Well, it creates more polarization in our society. Rather than finding ways to build a community, we become more polarized. We, we find ways to be at loggerheads with one another rather than find ways to come together. And we think that the way we come together is our side wins, we overcome the other side, and then everyone has to come with us. That's not happening. We're not going to overpower the other side and create harmony, create some sort of community. So that, that's why this trap keeps us in this sort of state of racial hostility that we suffer from. So let's, uh, let's drill down now a little bit more specifically in some of the things you discuss in the book, having that context behind us. You said that the two most dominant competing models for confronting racial issues today are colorblindness on the one hand and anti-racism on the other. So what do you mean by those terms? Because I think those terms can mean very different things to people sure. too. So look, yeah. let's start with colorblindness. I, I could say that I was born in 1978. I was sort of a, a product of the 90s and we were taught to be colorblind. We, that was yeah. sort of the dream of Martin Luther King, that we should judge one another by the content of one another's character rather than by the, the color of our skin. So colorblindness was essentially lifted up as a ideal. I think as I've matured and grown as a Christian, I realized that God's vision for his church is colorful, that we don't lose our, our distinctive identity in terms of ethnicity or gender or culture, but we're brought into the one family of Christ. Therefore, the church is called to be colorful rather than color blind. But I, I think people react very differently to that word colorblindness. So how are you using that term? What does that mean for you? And, and I'm sympathetic because I, I do think that at one point of our history, colorblindness was, was really seen as a good thing. And it's very understandable when you're going from Jim Crow to colorblindness. That's definitely an improvement. But what people of color will point out is that, you know, there's historical effects that don't go away by being colorblind. Now, the way I define colorblindness is to uh, an idea that our goal is that we don't treat people differently based on their race and thus we don't see their race as being very important unless there's there's you know there's a few there's a few isolated circumstances where it might for example if you're trying to describe someone to the police officer yeah you would pay attention to their race but ideally we would not pay attention to race at all uh race is not that important and that would be the sort of the ideal behind colorblind but in the book, you, you talk about how uh, colorblindness is uh, an unhelpful path forward through our racial conflict. So why, why is that? H how would you define it in the negative sense? Sure. So as I said, you know, when you compare it to Jim Crow, colorblindness is a great thing. And there's no doubt about that. However, given our racial history and given the sort of institutional structures that are there, which do not require someone to be racist, to have an impact on people of color, uh, then we have, if that's the case, then we have to be conscious of color 
as we try to deal with the racial issues today. To be colorblind then is to lock into place some of the advantages European Americans have over people of color without any chance of correcting for those. And that's why colorblindness becomes a problem. For people of color who experience these things, even if they've not read the studies, but you experience how your race impacts you in your life, for people of color then to be told, ignore race, it's like if you have a wound and people say, well, ignore that wound. You don't have to worry about banding, bandaging. You don't have to take care of it. It's just, you know, ignore it. Well, eventually a person can say, well, the wound hurts though, and we've got to take care of it. And that's why colorblindness is not an effective way to deal with our racial problems today in and of itself. I'm not saying there are situations where we should be colorblind, because there are, but basically overall, as an overarching philosophy, it fails. By contrast, uh, many people see the shortcomings of that colorblindness approach, and they have latched on to a different different path. And in your book, you, you identify that path as anti-racism. So do you want to define that for us too? Because again, a lot of people would say, well, shouldn't we all be anti-racist? We should be opposed to racism. So so what do you mean by that term, anti-racism? Yeah, I, I think both colorblindness and anti-racism share something in that they're, they're, they're very nice sounding terms. I mean, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not going to treat you differently because you're race. I'm against racism. They're, they're very great sounding terms, uh, but they, they each have their own problems. So to understand anti-racism, what I did, I didn't want to read academic literature on the subject because not everyone's reading academic literature. You know, all of 15 people are reading this article on anti-racism by, you know, in the journal on anti-racism. So what I did was I read the popular books at the time. Now remember, 2020, what are the two books that were on the top of all the bestseller lists? How to Be Anti-Racist, White Fragility. I also read books such as So You Want to Talk About Race, uh, Me and White Supremacy, uh, there's a couple of others. I read some of the online articles that seem to get a lot of hits on anti-racism. Because I want to know how people in in popular society are understanding anti-racism. So I didn't want to critique an academic model that may not be may not translate to what people are actually doing and, and believing today. And from that I got three tenets. I got the first tenet was that race is and racism is multifaceted, is in a lot of different ways. Uh, second, we have to be very intentional in, in tackling racism. Now, those two tenets, you know, if that's all anti-racism was, I'd probably call myself an anti-racist. But the third tenet, which I found again and again and again in a variety of different books, so I'm not, I can go to these books and I, I can point you to the evidence of this tenet again and again and again. I know it's controversial, but once again, I'm open to someone trying to correct that this is not a, a feature of anti-racism. And that is, it's the role of whites to do what people of color want them to do. And that's where I think it falls apart. And that's when, when I start looking at research, when people try to use this sort of philosophy to do things such as diversity training or do, to do some sort of encounter mm-hmm. sessions or what, however you want to look at it, to try to change the, the company to hire more people of color. When people do that, it fails. And research has shown this again and again that it fails. Diversity training does not reduce prejudice long-term. Trying to be very overt in, in trying to hire people of color and trying to uh, set up grievance committees and, and trying to do diversity training to do that does not result in more people of color being hired. Anti-racism as a philosophy sounds good to a point, but when we actually do it, it doesn't work. 
And so we have to ask the question, why doesn't it work? One of the other things you talked about in the book as a way of contrasting those two approaches is that colorblindness causes one to ignore the issues of race and anti-racism runs the risk of overcorrection. Could you expand on that idea too? Yeah, I think anti-racism, while understandable people want to be more proactive, actually, you know, it's like when you have your kid and you, you're going to really force your kid to, to do something and the kid just rebels. And so I think anti-racism really creates this atmosphere of rebellion against, against really tackling racial issues. And so neither one of them truly works for those reasons. One of the things I, I mentioned in the book is that now people with colorblindness, they're concerned about equality. They're concerned about everyone being treated equal. Anti-racism is concerned about justice. Both of those are great things. Yeah, both of those are great things. But almost anything that, that you take to extreme produces problems. And so you can be so, create, so worried about current equality that you forget about the structures that continue to hurt people with different groups. And you can be so concerned about justice that that justice can turn into revenge. So both of them kind of go overboard and what I would say are, you know, good qualities to have. One of the other things you talk about is uh, the role that fear plays in our dysfunctional race relationships. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. There, there's a, a cycle of fear that, that affects us. So, so how would you describe that cycle? Uh, having talked with me and my white friends, I, I know that many of them fear being called a racist. I mean, fear of being put down, being, you know, being canceled, if you will. And so that's a fear that they have. And so for that, because of that fear, they don't want to engage in the racial dialogue. So they pull back. Now, people of color see this, and they fear that whites are not going to take them seriously. They fear that whites are going to just see, see them as just a bunch of whiners, that, that they're going to paper over all the, all the problems that they see. So they fear, they fear that, and then they react accordingly. And many times their reaction actually actually feeds into the white spheres. They say, oh, yeah, see, they just want to call me racist. They pull back even more. People of color see that. They, they become more fearful of, of their insecurities, and, and then they react. And so we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, where it, the, the definition of insanity, hoping it's going to change, and it doesn't. Unless we deal with those fears, then we're sort of stuck with where we're at. So that brings us to the heart of what you're proposing in your book, which is that what we need is a model which you call mutual accountability. So how is mutual accountability or collaborative conversation a better model for confronting racial issues? Could you briefly describe that model and why you see that as being better than the colorblindness approach on the one hand or anti-racism efforts on the other? Certainly. So I think both anti-racism and colorblind, I'm sorry, yeah, anti-racism and colorblindness both kind of say, look, do things our way and then we'll get harmony, then we'll get, you know, trying to force their ideas on others. What we need, though, is to sit down and talk about our ideas together and, and come let us reason, let us figure things out together. Let me understand where you're coming from, understand where I'm coming from. Can we find ideas that work well together, where you can address some of my concerns and your concerns are addressed. So we can all have buy-in to work together. So when you do colorblindness and you try to force it on, on people of color, they rebel. They, they go, look, you don't understand what 
situation. You know, I'm not going to listen to you because you're not even trying to understand where I'm coming from. And vice versa with anti-racism. We try to do anti-racism. The research really shows that people, you know, you get a backlash. You get people who will pull back, who will rebel in, in subtle ways that they can't overtly rebel. You get the school board protests. So we can't do that. Let's come to the table with people who are steeped in anti-racism and steeped in colorblindness, who bring concerns and try to figure out those concerns together. As I said earlier, one of the things that I most appreciated about the book was how well-researched it was. And one of the things you dedicate a whole chapter to is the empirical basis for mutual accountability. So what are some of the studies that have shown that this is a more effective way to confront racial alienation? On the one hand, we do have studies that show that this sort of approach really helps us to deal with conflicts, with, to deal with issues. We don't have the studies in the area of race at this point in time, and I hope to do some of those studies over the course of the next couple of years. But we, we know, for example, in therapeutic relationships, in therapeutic relationships, a, a collaborative conversation approach where the person works with the person rather than trying to dictate to them what they should do is much more effective. We know it's been effective in the educational approaches. We know that if we want to look at some research on race, that under the right conditions, interracial contact actually can facilitate a more healthy type of, of relationship with one another. We also know, for example, persuasion. We don't persuade people by trying to force them to believe something. We persuade people by finding out where we agree, uh, acknowledging when they have a good point, truly understanding their perspective, active listening, if you will. And honest, good persuasion techniques actually build community. We actually build community with people that we disagree with because we're persuading them in ways that are helpful rather than trying to force them to do what we want them to do. Now, this takes, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take a long time. It's not going to happen overnight. But this is the better path for us to go, to break the, our cycles of fear, break our cycles of protest, counter-protest, working together rather than fearing each other, learning about each other. This is what we need in order to move forward in our society on racial issues. Maybe you could explain this a little bit more, but I think what resonates with me regarding the term mutual accountability is that on the one hand, it's mutual, so you can't duck out of the conversation, which would be the error of colorblindness. We have to acknowledge the issues and confront them. And the accountability part means that we all need to be part of the conversation, that it, it's not an issue for one or another person or a group to solve. We, we have to solve this uh, together. So that's just how I've reflected on it. I'd love to hear how you reflect on that term, mutual accountability. Why, why does even that term itself capture a better path than uh, what's available to us through colorblindness or anti-racism? I think it shows that we all have skin in the game and we all are responsible for something. And one thing I, I want to be clear is the answers may not be mutual. In fact, I think a lot of times the answers are not going to be mutual in that people of color and whites have the exact same responsibilities. But the responsibility to have a healthy conversation is mutual for everyone. And no one can say, well, because I'm black, I don't have to have this conversation with you. Or no one can say, well, I'm white and we, and we freed you in civil war, so why should I have this conversation with you? Mm -hmm. Everyone responsible for that. No one can, can duck out and say, well, it's just their, their responsibility to have this conversation. And we do it, honestly, we do it all the time 
in our families usually. So when we have a conflict with uh, with a brother or sister or a spouse or or even our kids once they reach a certain age, we engage in them. We don't just say, can you imagine if your spouse says, could you take out the trash? And you say, well, I don't want to. So you take out the trash. This is your job. I'm going to leave it at that. You know, they have a reward for people to do that. It's called divorced. We have to, we have to engage in our, you know, we have to engage in our spouse. We have to discuss, you know, well, what about these responsibilities? Hey, and that's fine. That's what you do. But when it comes to race, all of a sudden we start to think that, well, I can just dictate to people who are not like me how they should act, how they should think, and they should accept that. And we know that's not the case because that's not how we treat people and our, our friends, our family. That's not how we do that. So this is something that we know about. We just have not done it on racial issues. Well, one of the things I really appreciated as I was reading the book was that you gave a name to something that I had started engaging in because following the murder of George Floyd, an uh, elder at our church got together with me and then two of my African-American friends who are in ministry. And on a monthly basis, we had the Zoom call where we said, we're allowed to ask any question are allowed to say anything without fear and let's just better understand one another's perspective on the racial issues that we're contending with as Christians and help each other see what we couldn't see, understand what we couldn't understand merely on our own. And those conversations have been one of the most enriching things I've probably done in my life. And I think it's actually a good example of, of what you reveal in your book regarding mutual accountability. Well, you make it clear that you're writing not only as a sociologist, but as a Christian believer. So what role has your own faith played in thinking through these issues? I really do think that this is a Christian approach, that this is the approach that we uh, we take the Bible seriously. This is the approach that we light up. And And people can disagree with me. I understand that. I get that. But here's how I come at it. So I'm not looking at a specific passage. I'm looking at some of the themes in the Bible. And one of the things in the Bible is human depravity. And it's really, it is such a critical difference between, say, Christianity and secular philosophies, which have the notion of human perfectibility, that we can create a more perfect human. Human depravity means that you cannot trust me 100% when it comes to entering this conversation, nor can I trust you. We have our own biases, and we're gonna we're gonna create a solution that's gonna work well for us, and maybe not for you. So, if that's the case, even people who've been victimized, and and history is replete of groups of people who've been victimized and then turn around and become oppressors. You know, Cuba is a great example. Castro came from he was reacting to oppression and then became an oppressor. Research shows that people who who were victimized as kids grew up to victimize others, you know, they're more likely to. So even people who are victimized can engage in sin. You know, being victimized does not mean you engage in sin and you can set up terms that are unfair. So because of that, we need some sort of check. You know, the ideal check is Christ just comes down and tells us exactly what to do, but that's not gonna happen. Uh, not, until, not until the other side. Uh, so the best check we got is each other. Because when I listen to someone who's not me, I can hear perspectives that I don't normally hear. And that allows me then to engage with them and to think it through what I see as possible solutions. And likewise, 
So I think that this is, is a Christian approach. Also look at what the Bible says about thinking about others, putting others before oneself. And we don't tend to want to do that on racial issues. We want to say, no, you know, justice or no, equality. I don't have to think about their concerns. But that Bible is just there. And it says we have to do that. This is a healthy way in which we can do that. This is a healthy way in which we can engage in it with others and find solutions for for the solution for the problems that are before us. So I think this is a very scriptural approach. I honestly think that colorblindness and anti-racism both are secular approaches because they're about creating perfection by following our rules. And this is the approach that I think is what I think I would have us to do. I was pleasantly surprised when I came across that word depravity because I feel that most people are trying to avoid talking about depravity or sin. And yet by identifying that as actually a key to the solution, I thought was brilliant because that's right. These secular approaches and ideologies want to deny sin and depravity, but it's only when we confront the reality of who we actually are as human beings that we can make progress in the issues that we face. If you could, I wonder, with a broad brush, how you might paint a, a picture of, of what the Bible has to say about race and ethnicity and God's mission to bring people together, despite the many reasons why we might be divided. I guess you have to think about that, you know, this side of heaven and the other side of heaven. You know, the other mm -hmm. side of heaven, you know, we're all together and, and our differences here just go away. Uh, but on this side of heaven, they, they remain. So are we going to achieve that this side of heaven? Total reunification or probably not. But I think God wants us to move closer and closer to it. So what we can do is that we can become better at caring about people who are not like us and, find, and working on how we can find solutions to problems by listening to others and finding effective ways of communicating with others by building our communities. We can do that. We can move closer and closer, even if we don't totally ever get there. I think we're called to do that. I would also say that in a post-Christian society, that if we offer answers on race that's not being seen in other parts of society, and while there are, are people who are not necessarily Christians who are talking about this, not nearly enough, but what the church was became known as the place where we could have healthy conversations on race. In a post-Christian society where people don't have to go to church anymore, they don't feel the social pressure to go to church anymore, and that could be a good thing in some ways. But now they would want to go to church to see how, you know, on a problem they can't solve themselves, how are these people solving this problem? I think they become a very powerful witness if we take it seriously and really engage in this type of reconciliation. I agree with you 100% about that. I think the church needs to lead the way. And if anything would spark another great awakening, that would be it. That's a, that's a great thought. Well, uh, why don't we move to some of the closing questions I, I offered. First of all, what advice might you offer to faithful Christians today who would like to make a positive contribution to the pursuit of biblical justice and reconciliation from the standpoint of the gospel? Uh, if there was someone listening to the podcast who, who sees what you see and who cares about what you care about, what advice would you give in order to help them start along this path of pursuing justice and reconciliation yeah. from a biblical point of view? Well, there's things you can do personally, and there's things we could do as a group, as, you know, 
trying to build more of a movement. Personally, you could just begin to practice these things uh, in your daily life. So maybe you uh, call up someone of a different race who you disagree, you disagree with on racial issues, invite them to coffee and just listen to them, listen to their perspective. Don't, don't argue per se, just listen and see, can you fully understand why they feel the way that they feel? That's something we can do on a personal level. You know, I discuss that in the book. Uh, you know, we are trying to start some things. We're trying to start a program at Baylor. If you want to support that, uh, Facebook group, if you want to join that to have better conversations with one another. And so there are efforts along those lines. If you're a member of a church and you have standing in that church, you could discuss, are there ways that your church can engage in the conversation with a, with a different church, church with a different perspective, racial perspective, to understand issues, kind of what you did with your pastoral friends. And I think that's available. I, I know there's an organization called Mosaics that's doing some in Portland, it's doing something similar like that. So it depends on where you at. Is this something you want to do as an individual? Do you have a leadership role that you could you could use to help your church or your denomination to move forward? Or, and if you want to support some of the work that's doing or engage the conversation online, you know, there are some opportunities there as well. In the book, you talk about some of the things that you personally have done, which I think offers a great model. Do you want to describe that for a minute? Uh, how you purposely have entered into conversations with people that you knew you might disagree with about certain things, but there were approaches that you took. There, there was a self-consciousness about it that I think might be helpful. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the best example was after the 2016 election, I want to understand why people voted for Trump. I didn't want to argue with them about it. I didn't want to be in a role of saying you shouldn't have voted for Trump. I wanted to understand why they voted for Trump. Usually social media is not the place to do this, but I, I use my social media, my Facebook page. I just say, look, you know, just tell me why. I'm not going to argue with you. You know, I give them a promise. I'm not going to argue with them or let other people argue with them. I just want to clarify questions. I just wanted to find out what happened. Why, why, you, voted for, why you voted for Trump? And, you know, my whole purpose was I wanted to understand. Uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, and I think I do understand more now uh, because I did that. And I think that that's, that's helpful as I engage in conversation with individuals. There, there's that, you know, there's things that we try to do in, in our lives. If you're around people of different races, you have a ready set of people who could have different perspectives on your racial issues. And when, when that opportunity comes up, you could engage in that conversation. I try to do that. Do I get into uh, discussions, disagreements, arguments, if you will? Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm not where I should be yet. But I'm trying to engage people in more way to try to understand where they're coming from. And when the time comes, when you know, when I need to have a conversation that that's, could be more productive, I hope I understand them well enough to have that conversation. Yeah, I feel that there's far too little of that. We spend so much of our time arguing with one another and trying to win. And we don't spend nearly enough time simply listening and trying to understand. And we would do ourselves all a service if we took more of that approach. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.